Good morning, brothers and sisters. In our gospel today, Jesus gives us a very clear teaching that if we want to love him, if we want to remain in his love and in the love of the Father, we must keep his word. We must keep his word. And I think all Christians recognize this, regardless of denomination. They understand very clearly that the word of God, Jesus Christ himself is the incarnate word, but the word of God is what we need to stay close to and to keep. This is why there's such a love of the scriptures among Christians in general. This is a good thing. But there's a challenge that we all have because when we look at all of the Christians throughout the world, we see that they do not all interpret the word of God the same way. I'm not saying we have the exact same scriptures, but they're close enough. They're close enough. So even though we have the written word of God that's been handed down to us for the last 2,000 years, and of course even older from the Old Testament times, there's a lack of unity in the body of Christ. Because we all have different interpretations of how to keep that word because we all have differing opinions as to what that word actually says, what it means. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the same thing your children do to you. That's not what I remember you saying, Mommy. <laughs> you knew what I meant, right? That's what Mom and Dad used to say. You knew what I meant. But misinterpretation is a great tool. It's a great tool of the enemy to break apart the body of Christ. So how do we resolve this problem? The simple mistake is assuming that any one of us can properly interpret the scriptures on our own. Now, our Lord in the gospel is promising that once he ascends to heaven, he's going to send the advocate, the Holy Spirit. And he tells them that the Holy Spirit will teach them everything they need to know and remind them of everything he told them. So again, the idea is, well, if I've received the Holy Spirit, then he'll teach me everything I need to know and remind me of everything Jesus teaches. So why is that not the case? Hasn't Jesus sent his spirit upon the world? Hasn't the Holy Spirit been working in the lives of the faithful for 2,000 years? It would seem to be that our Lord is incorrect, that he's wrong. Either he didn't send the spirit or the spirit can't really do what he claims. Precisely because there is little unity among those who claim to follow Christ, those who claim to have his word. This goes to show how difficult it is and how not a single one of us Christians can interpret the word on our own. This is why we were given in our first reading today from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15. If you haven't read it, sit down and read it. The first major controversy in the early life of the church. You see, the, the lack of unity, at least in regards to belief and conviction, is nothing new. It happens in the scriptures. There it is. The church has only been around a couple of decades, and this big controversy gets stirred up. Why? Well, at first, the only Christians were Jews. They were the only ones who initially converted, but as the church began to grow and spread throughout the world, the Gentiles became converted and were baptized. Now they're Christians too. And so this debate arose in a lot of the communities as to whether the Gentiles needed to be circumcised or not. Circumcision is, is a Jewish law, it's a rule. 
It's one of the most basic ways in which the Jewish people make their covenant with God. And so as we heard in the first reading, many of the Jewish converts were telling the Gentile converts, you have to get circumcised if you want to be saved. Yes, you have to be baptized too. You've got to be circumcised as well. Now Paul and Barnabas and some of the others said, no, that's not necessary, so this argument developed, but they could not resolve it in the local community. So what did they do? They opened up the New Testament and they read through the Gospels, right? No. The New Testament didn't exist. It hadn't been written yet. There was no New Testament. There was no complete Bible that we have today. So the only thing that they could do was to send representatives to Jerusalem, to the apostles. Because they figured if anybody can resolve this, the apostles can do that. So Paul, Barnabas, and some others, they return to Jerusalem, and they have a council, an official. It's the first council of the church, where the Pope, Peter, and the bishops, the other apostles, and others all gathered together and debated this disagreement in regards to discipleship. If you read the entire chapter 15, you'll see that there's a lot of debate back and forth trying to interpret and understand the will of Christ. After this debate, Peter stands up and Peter says, you all know that I was chosen from you to be the final say, the authority in these kind of matters, so this is the decision. It is not necessary to be circumcised in order to follow Christ. You don't have to do this anymore for our Gentile converts. These are the only rules that you need to keep following, and they were listed in our first reading. So the debate was over once Peter declared the truth of it, and the rest of the apostles accepted it, and then it went out to the rest of the church and was taught. No more debate. You see, Jesus did not give us a book. Jesus did not give us any type of writing. And he never once throughout the Gospels told any of his apostles to write anything down. He said, go forth and preach my word, not go forth and write down my word. Now, why do we have a New Testament? What is the point of this inspired word of God in union with the Old Testament that we call the Bible or the Scriptures? A lot of people don't realize this. In the earliest decades of the church, when the apostles were still alive, it was believed by all of them, even St. Paul talks about it, that Christ would come in their lifetime, that the second coming of Jesus Christ would happen while all of them were still alive. At least, they thought, while John the beloved disciple was, was still alive, since he lived the longest of them all. But Christ never came. This actually confused the early church. Now, I want you to imagine, you're the, the apostles and all the new disciples. Are you concerned about recording in written form any of these teachings? No, you don't need to. Jesus is going to come in the next 20 to 40 years. Why do we have to write any of this down? We just have to keep preaching it, bringing converts in until the time is right. But what happens in the history of the early church? The apostles start dying off, and Jesus hasn't come yet. So they get a little concerned. What are we going to do? <laughs> Our Lord hasn't come. The apostles are dying. 
honestly, we should probably start writing down some of the things that they taught us. So that's where the four Gospels came from. And then subsequently, the letters of the New Testament, predominantly written by St. Paul and, and some others, of course, James and Peter. That's where the church began to preserve these writings because they realized if the apostles die off, we're in trouble. So the early church began to preserve all of the writings of the earliest saints, the apostles and their disciples. But if you know your history, you'll know that we have many, many letters and documents written from around that time period and a little afterward. We actually have a beautiful letter written by St. Clement. He is the first pope after Peter. So he was Peter's, not predecessor, successor. There you go, thank you. <laughs> he was Peter's successor as the second pope of the church, the second leader of the church. And he wrote a lot, and we have some of his works, but there's this beautiful letter he wrote that if you read it, you would not be able to tell that it wasn't written by St. Paul. It sounds exactly like one of Paul's letters, to the T. So why wasn't that included in the New Testament along with other documents that were preserved from that time? There's actually a really good reason for this. The first thing is, no document written after 92, 93 AD is ever considered canon, meaning scripture. Never. By the church, will not accept it if it was written after that point. Why? Because John, the last of the 12 apostles, died around that time. And so the church won't even consider any document, regardless of how holy and, and truthful it is, as scripture. If it was written after the death of the last apostle. Because they could not be assured that it was divinely inspired. John was ultimately the final say in the early histories of the church for what is divinely inspired and what is not. So those documents that he and the other apostles approved before they died were the only ones ultimately considered scripture. That's where the New Testament came from. That's why we have the specific books of the New Testament, the specific gospels and letters that we do to this day. It was the church that gave us the scriptures, not the scriptures that give us the church. This is one of the basic mistakes that we make. We think that the word of God is only the scriptures. But we know that the word of God is Jesus Christ. And the word of God can be incarnate, the living Jesus Christ. We know in the Eucharist, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. We know that the word of God can be spoken, the spoken word of God. That's the word of God. And the word of God can be written, the scriptures. The written word of God, it's all the word of God. But we forget that the church is also the word of God. Because the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the logos, the divine word. Jesus Christ gave us a church, a community of believers that he empowered to hand on 
his grace, and his teachings. It was that church that wrote the New Testament. It was that church that brought in converts. It was that church who resolved controversies and disagreements among the people. It was the church who did this. Now, to help clarify and solidify this point, we're given the second reading today from the book of Revelations. So most people, most Christians, wrongly think that the book of Revelations is merely this prophetic book that reveals hidden mysteries of the future. I, I'm sure it does on some level. But that's not actually the purpose of the book of Revelation. John the Beloved Disciple wrote it. It was the final book written for the New Testament. And what he is describing is a vision that he received, and in this particular instance, a vision of the holy city, Jerusalem. He says, but this isn't the city of Jerusalem that was on earth, because this one came down from heaven. This is important. This city came down from heaven, he says. And he describes it, and he gives us all this imagery about you know, the 12 gates and the 12 courses of stones that are the foundation and the names of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel that are written on the gates and the 12 angels guarding the 12 gates and everything else about the temple. Not the temple, sorry, the city. If you read the fathers of the church, they explain this mystical imagery. You see, what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us through the book of Revelation and through the ministry of John is what the church looks like and how the church exists. We know that we are the body of Christ. The Lord teaches that we are the living stones, the living stones by which the house of God, the city of God, the temple of God is built. So when you hear this description of the stonework of the holy city, it's talking about the people of God. It's talking about us. That's what John is describing that he saw in this vision. Now we all, over the last 2,000 years, Christians, have been built up into this holy city. And you can call it a holy temple as well because, as you heard in the description, there's no actual temple in the city because the entire city is the temple. But we're told very clearly on what foundation this city is built. Because this city has 12 different kinds of stones that make up its foundation. And these 12 stones, we're told, represent the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 apostles of the Lamb. We know who those 12 apostles are. The ones that Jesus, the Lamb of God, chose to be the foundation of the holy city, of his church, of his body. But why, why 12? Why is 12 so significant a number for us? If you remember, after Jesus died, Judas, the Iscariot, hung himself. He took his own life. He despaired of salvation. And so after the resurrection from the dead, Peter and the other apostles got together after Jesus had ascended into heaven, and Peter said this, we must choose another to complete the number of apostles that Jesus has chosen. Since Judas has betrayed the Lord and us, 
we need a 12th. They were down to 11. So they prayed and they talked, and in the end they decided on a man named Matthias. Now when we look at the rest of the history of the early church, there were far more than just 12 bishops, because those bishops went out and made more bishops. Well, if they were going to make more bishops the whole time, why did they need 12 to begin with? What's the significance and what's the point? Jesus didn't choose 12 randomly. We know that 12 represents the people of God. Because in this holy city, there are 12 gates. So it's a perfect square, the city is, and there are three gates on each wall. And on these gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Israel was a real man in the Old Testament. And he had, guess what, 12 sons. And from these sons came all of the descendants of God's holy people. So to be a member of the Israelites, you had to be born into this family. You had to have the same blood. Genetics were the means by which you were made a member of the people of God. But that's not true anymore, because when Christ came, even though he was born of the 12 tribes, an Israelite from birth, when he is reconstituting the people of God, instead of having 12 sons himself like Israel, he adopts 12 new men that he's not related to by blood, except distantly as a Jew. He adopts them. He baptizes them into his body, a new birth. Not like their earthly birth from their mothers, this is a spiritual birth. And then, to make sure that they are all of one blood, he dies for them. And he gives them his blood in the Holy Eucharist. You see, it's through the body of Christ that we are made of one blood. Not our own, but the blood of Jesus. So Jesus, by choosing these 12 men, by giving them these sacraments and these graces, is reconstituting Israel, the tribes. But now it's a spiritual family, not a physical one, not a merely genetic one, I guess I should say. So in this new city of Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, the foundation of that city are the 12. And they are built up, and upon them is built the rest of this holy city. That's each one of us. Now, because of our difficulty in interpreting the word of God correctly, and yet our necessity to interpret it rightly so that we can love God, we need an interpreter. We need someone to tell us what it means, especially when there's disagreement. Among many Christians, we agree, so fine. Yeah, no disagreement, that's okay. But when there are disagreements, we need an authority, and the Bible is not an authority. It has no authority whatsoever. It's a book. You can't give authority to words on a page. And we know we can't trust the Holy Spirit to inspire us individually in order to interpret the scriptures rightly. Because if we look over the last 2,000 years, that hasn't worked so well. But the Acts of the Apostles tells us that when there is a difficulty or a disagreement in the body of Christ, what do we do? We do what the Bible tells us, what the church has always done, we go to the hierarchy. We go to the apostles. 
they still exist to this day. The Pope and the bishops are the descendants, the spiritual descendants of the apostles of the Lamb. And they interpret for us. They clarify the church's teaching. And through their headship, we are maintained as a singular body. We are united and kept whole and kept faithful to Christ. The disunity among Christians is one of the greatest scandals of the church. And we have a serious responsibility to be faithful to Christ's church. To be united one with another. To not fight and argue and have so many disagreements. We should suffer. We should sacrifice in order to maintain unity in the body. Because ultimately, that's the greatest witness that we can give to the rest of the Gentiles, to the rest of the world that still does not know Christ. So that they would see our witness and see our love for Christ and each other, and then want to share in that same love. So we pray for the grace to be once again united. United as the people of God, united as his holy city, but united in the church under the headship of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 